as you encounter a question that perhaps you're a bit fuzzy about, to think about some of the things you have done in your lab work and oftentimes thinking through that will lead you to an answer to the exam question. So even though it's something we talked about together in class, your work on your lab work can also be uh, something that would really, would really help you with that. And as an example of that, um, we're getting ready to jump back into our discussion of the procurement process. And last time we were together, uh, we were talking about organizational levels related to procurement. And, and we had left off here talking about purchasing organizations and we went through the different scenarios related to purchasing organizations and so on and and where we were going to pick up where we are going to pick up today is is talking about purchasing groups now what does this have to do with what I was just talking about related to your lab work well one of the things that we will observe about a purchasing group is a purchasing group is actually assigned on the material master. And I'll show you that in a moment here. It'll be a point on our slides, and that may help you to remember it, but it also will be something you've done in your lab work. So if you can remember back to your lab work and use that as a vehicle for helping you remember this, do that. You know, that could be the difference on five or 10 questions on the exam that hopefully you would get right. So what's a purchasing group do? Well, the job of a purchasing group is they do the nuts and bolts actually execution of the purchasing process. So the purchasing organization handles strategy. Now I've always tried to figure out like a good mnemonic or good technique to try and differentiate purchasing group from purchasing organization and I've never settled on one that I thought was perfect. But maybe this will help you. The word organization is a longer, more significant word than group. You know, organization has a ton of letters in it. Group is a real short word. Organization handles the strategy. They handle the big picture stuff. So the big word handles the big picture stuff, and the short word, they handle the actual mechanics of it. It's not a great uh, parallel or, or technique, but, but maybe that'll help you keep these straight. The purchasing group plays a very, very important process in the purchasing process for an organization, which is they are the ones who are going to be our primary point of contact with a vendor. And certainly, depending upon how we engage in purchasing for our, our organization, um, we may find that we deal with a particular vendor on an ongoing basis. You know, in some cases, we may have vendors that deliver to us daily, or even some organizations get multiple deliveries a day from the same vendor. And so our relationship with our vendors could be very, very critical to the success of our organization. I, I don't know if I've made this observation in here previously. I, I apologize. I teach two classes that have somewhat similar topics of conversation, and I'm always trying to keep them straight in my brain. But in regards to our relationship with our vendors, if we buy poor quality products, we're going to have a hard time turning around and creating good products out of them. Um, the example I always like to use is if we were to bring into this room the world's greatest chef, 
and give him or her, you know, 10 pounds of maggot infested ground beef and lettuce that's like a month old so it's turned black. Even though that might be a highly skilled individual, they couldn't make us a good hamburger out of that, or at least not a hamburger that that I would want to eat. And so the quality of what we produce is in some ways at least derived from the quality of our inputs, the things that we buy. So having a good relationship with our vendors could be one of our keys to success as an organization. And so the people that work in our purchasing group are, are critical in maintaining that relationship with, with our vendors. Now, the purchasing group is not assigned to an organizational level. Keep in mind that last time when we were talking about the purchasing organization, remember we drew all those circles and we talked about client level, enterprise level purchasing and company code specific purchasing and plant specific purchasing. And so the implication there clearly was that purchasing organizations have a particular fixed role as far as the entity and the level of the organization that they deal with. That's not the case with purchasing groups. Purchasing groups are not assigned to any organizational level. Now in fact, and, and this might strike you as kind of odd, a purchasing group technically might be made up of people that don't work for our company. I don't know how common this is. I suspect it varies greatly from industry to industry, but a lot of companies will partner with other companies for the sake of managing their purchasing process. And so literally, the purchasing group, those people are people that work for another company but they fulfill the role of vendor relations for our organization and our purchasing process. So the primary things that they do is a lot of planning. You know, when do we need products and making sure they have an understanding of that. They either create purchase requisitions or they receive purchase requisitions from other parts of our organization. They get quotes from vendors, they create purchase orders, and they monitor purchase orders. Now, I want to particularly talk about this right here, the, the getting of vendor quotes. And you might say, well, hold on a second. I thought the purchasing organization did a lot of getting of quotes and managing the relationship with vendors. And remember here, the idea is the purchasing organization looks at this on a strategic level. So they might go to a particular vendor and say, next year we expect to buy um, 10 million pounds of something. And on that basis, um, let's try and come to an agreement as to prices that you'll give us and other things that you'll do for us in exchange for us engaging in that relationship with your company. So they tend to think in terms of those kind of big picture strategic purchases. But even for small purchases, we still have to engage in getting quotes from a vendor as a part of the procurement process. So uh, maybe we don't need 10 million pounds of something, we need 100 pounds of something. And I don't know what the something is, but that might result in us having to call two or three vendors, find out what they can sell that to us for, and then acting on this. This is often referred to as, as spot buying. 
And so if you kind of uh, maybe think of that in relation to the term on the spot. And so the idea is a strategic purchase is something that I start working on maybe a month or two or six months or a year in advance and we have extended discussions. This is something where somebody comes to me and says, hey, next Tuesday I need 100 pounds of that. Here's a purchase requisition and I'm going to have to act on that pretty quickly. And so the purchasing people are going to go out, get some quotes and, and work within that time frame. So when we talk about the mechanics of this, the getting of quotes and other things, that could be done either by the purchasing organization or the purchasing group. But what makes the purchasing group unique is they're the ones who are actually fielding the purchase requisitions. They're the ones who are actually creating the purchase orders. They're the ones that are down in the trenches actually making this happen. Now this next point is one that I put in bold and I'll go ahead and put some stars next to it because it's a really important fact that I promise you you'll see at least one question uh, related to on your, on your midterm exam, which is purchasing groups are actually assigned to individual materials on the material master. Now in your lab work, to make it easy, you only have one purchasing organization and you only have one purchasing group. So in fact, every time you copied a material, you remember the process where you've done that a few times and you'll do it again this semester as other labs go on, you might remember that you had to do the copying and then after you did the copying, you went in and changed a couple of things to reflect the specifics of your organization. You went and put your two-digit uh, uh, user code in front of the name of that product and then you also went in and adjusted the purchasing group and so if we just look at that as an example here for a moment because this also ties into uh, something that relates to what we have talked about and we'll talk a little bit more about related to the material master so if I go in here and do display current and I want to look for a material and by the way I don't know if you have realized this I hope you have I don't think the lab specifically instructed you of this but the reason why you put your two-digit number at the beginning of your material descriptions is so you could come in when it's time to look for a material and, and do what I just did here. My number is 02. So if I do 02 space star, it's only going to give me back my materials. Okay? So if you haven't been using that particular trick, um, keep that in mind. Okay, and so uh, let me just pick a particular item here. Um, I'm looking for the, the pump, which let's see, where's the pump here? I'll sort it by material. And uh, do I not have the pump? Okay, well, let's do this. I'm going to look for the pump of the reference company because it's a good product for us to look at in regards to this. So I'm going to put in pump 1000 here and, and I only want to look at in this case uh, the purchasing information. Okay, And so I, I'm going to hit the check mark here and, and notice what it asks me. Okay, so um, what plant do you want to look at this for? And we'll come back to that in a moment. And I'll say I want to look at this for the Dallas plant. And notice it's my Dallas plant, my 02 plant Dallas. So watch what it's going to say here. It's going to say, um, 
the data you require does not exist for that plant or for that product in that plant. That's because that material cannot be bought in the context of my Dallas plant because I, I haven't set it up to do so. So if I go in here instead now and say, okay, I want to look at this in terms of the, let's see if the Hamburg plant has that material. And so I'll put in the Hamburg plant and lo and behold, I have the Hamburg plant and notice right here on the material master purchasing group. Okay. So every material, and I'm going to leave something out, every material blank has a purchasing group assigned to it. What's the little caveat that I need to put in that statement I just made? Every material, and there's a qualifier, has a purchasing group assigned. What's the qualifier? What? That's a really good answer because it relates to this, but what specifically about the type of the material or of the material type? Let me ask you the question a different way. True or false? Every material has a purchasing group assigned to it. True or false? Sitting there and looking at me really, really scared is not the good answer. That's not going to get you a point on the midterm. You're going to have to commit. Okay, let's see. How many of you say true? Uh, every material has a purchasing group assigned to it. How many say true? All right, we've got about eight or ten people. How many say false? Okay, it's like the class is split 50-50. So half of you are going to feel good and half of you aren't. But what's more important is you remember this come next week. Does every material have a purchasing group? No, it does not. It absolutely does not. Now, you made the observation, which was very good. You said, oh, material type. Okay, I'll buy that. Somebody, remembering the concept of material type, explain to me why not every material has a purchasing group assigned. Which means what? Okay, and I'm kind of looking for you to say one more thing. We don't buy it. There are some materials that are in our system that we don't buy. We make them. We buy raw materials, we put them together, and they're, they're, that material is a finished good, which means we don't buy it. So if we don't buy the material, there's no purchasing group assigned. As a matter of fact, if we don't buy the material, we don't have a purchasing view, which means this whole tab doesn't exist in the context of the material. Okay, so this is where we've kind of got to put a few different facts here together to make sure we understand what's going on. But remember, material types. Okay, we have raw materials. Do we buy raw materials? Absolutely. Semi-finished goods. Do we buy semi-finished goods? We might. We, we certainly have that ability to buy semi-finished goods. So we might have a purchasing view for them. Um, trading goods. We absolutely have a purchasing view. Uh, or have a purchasing view for a, a, a finished good. Um, trade, or I don't know if it's a trading goods, we would have a purchasing view for. Finished goods, we may or may not, but in all likelihood we would not because we make finished goods. We don't buy them. If we bought them and turned around and sold them, we would not call it a finished good. We would call it a trading good. So we've kind of got to put all these different facts here together. So to go back to this, 
if I have a material that I buy, that material will be assigned a purchasing group on the material master. Now notice this, for the air pump in the Hamburg um, distribution center, it's assigned purchasing group E00. Okay, if I come up here and click on organizational levels and I look at it for another plant, okay, we already observed, but I'll just show you again, if I were to pick, and notice it's not even here on my pick list, but if I typed in any of my plants or any of your plants, we'd get back that doesn't exist because you don't have a purchasing view because you don't purchase this material. Now let's see, um, this is the, the Hamburg plant. Let's see if I pick the Heidelberg plant and, and what we want to watch out for, let's see if this changes over here. Okay, right now it says E00. If I change to Hamburg, ah, huh, what just happened? Hopefully you were watching quickly because it happened really, really quickly. What happened to the purchasing group? There isn't one. What does that tell us? The Heidelberg plant doesn't buy this. Okay? So depending upon what plant I put in here, we're either going to have a purchasing group assigned or not, and the purchasing group might be different. And notice here, it's N00. For Heidelberg, it was E00. So, once again, we see a great illustration of how views work. We have the same material, but depending upon what perspective we are looking at that material from, whether we're talking about the Miami plant or the Heidelberg plant or the Hamburg plant, the information we're going to see here will, will be different in the purchasing tab, okay? Really, really critical concept and a, a great illustration of what we have been talking about in regards to how the material master works. Questions about this? I think this kind of stuff is cool. And I can tell from the expression on all of your faces that you think this is like the coolest thing you've seen all day. That's not what your faces look like. But I know you're thinking that, so I'm just gonna go ahead and believe that that you're just having a really good poker face to not show the rest of your classmates how excited you are. All right, so we have talked about the organizational levels relevant to procurement. Now, topic number two. Yay, master data relevant to procurement. Okay, there are four things that we will talk about that are master data elements relevant to procurement. Should be no shock to you that one of those is the material master. We just looked at that, so we should have seen that coming. We also have the vendor master. We also have something called the purchasing info record, and we have something called conditions. And by the way, not that it's really that critical, but let me just make an observation here. Technically, what we've been calling the material master would probably be more formally called the material master record. And what we have called the vendor master would probably more formally be called the vendor master record. But I've never encountered anybody that called it that. They just call it the material master or the vendor master. But notice for purchasing info, for the sake of clarity, we do kind of have to add the word record onto that uh, to make sure that we have an understanding here. So 
Here's the material master along with a picture that I showed you before. The picture that I showed you before shows you the 12 different views that make up the material master. Now the point of this is not all of these views are relevant to us in procurement. There are, in fact, only five of them that are relevant. And if you printed this out in grayscale, uh, you might have lost this in your, in your note taking. So let me just clearly point out that the basic data view is relevant. The MRP data view is relevant. The plant data view is relevant. The financial accounting data view is relevant. And no surprise here, the purchasing data view is relevant, okay? Now, I don't know if on an exam, I, I, I certainly am never going to tell you, list the five views on the material master that are relevant to procurement. I, I would not do that and ask you to just list these freehand. But I might ask you some conceptual questions that would require you to kind of think through this logically and, and, and come up with an answer related to what it is that, that we are about to talk about. All right, so let's dig into this in a little bit more detail. What is there on the basic data view that is relevant to us in, in procurement? Well, one thing that's on the basic data view is the name of the material. Okay, that seems kind of important for the process of purchasing it. You know, it'd be kind of like if you went to work for a company purchasing and somebody walked up to you and says, I need you to buy us more XYZ10. And you said to them, okay, what is that? And they said, I, I can't tell you. Just XYZ10, buy it for me. It's not going to work real well. You kind of have to know the name of the material if you're going to actually go out there and purchase it. By the way, just as an aside, um, like KFC and all of these restaurants that have like secret recipes and stuff, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll have like different people in their organization buy the different materials and then they have like a, a secret lab where the ingredients are mixed together and then they're just like put in bags that say like, you know, chicken breading or something and then they're shipped to the individual stores and those kind of packages so that in the individual stores they don't really know what's in there either. It's all been put together. But the fact is at some point somebody had to know what it was they were going to buy. And so we have to have the name and a description of the item. We also have to, yes sir? Absolutely. I mean, I guess the, I, the idea here is sometimes just knowing the name of the item is not enough. Yeah, and you know, I have to know, like, the specification and other things like that. Yeah, I like the, like the description. Could be, like, ingredients and all that. So. And, and that might be something that, in this case, we would not have in our ERP system, but what you're talking about is a great example of things that we might have stored in the product lifecycle management system. Much more detailed like schematics or diagrams or formulas or things like that. And so, so yeah, we, we would have that, although it wouldn't be a part of the basic data view because the basic data view, as the name indicates, is just basic data, not anything more technical than that. Unit of measure, do we buy it each? 
do we buy it by the pound? Do we buy it by the kilogram? Do we buy it by the barrel? Do we buy it by, you know, all of those units of measures that you studied in high school and have never seen again, like a peck? and a half bushel and stuff like that. Uh, what's the unit of measure that this is going to be denominated in? We always keep track of the weight of the item. Even if it's something that we buy individually, we, we will often keep track of the, the weight of this. And then here's something that you have worked with, I, I believe, in your lab work so far that can be something that when you, and, and I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have done the material group stuff. I, I think it's like right on the cusp of what you're doing now for your lab work, where you're, you're building the material groups. Is it, can somebody shake your head as to, yeah, I've done that or not? Do you remember that? I know at least a few of, a couple of you are like done with the semester, all the labs and are working on stuff for next year, I think. But for those of you that are sticking right with us, I think this is something that you're getting ready to do right now put things into material groups. Well, if we have put something in a material group, we are going to see that in the basic data group, uh, or the basic data view. And, and let me just show you that real quick. So if I go here, and this time I am going to pull up a material that is, is a product of my company. And so I'm going to go here and do a search for 02 space. Don't forget the space, that's important star. And now um, I'm gonna pick my deluxe touring bike black. Okay, and I'm going to, just for the sake of this example, just pick the basic data view. Now notice, remember something we said last time? Basic data view is universal. So if that's the only view I want to see when I hit this check mark, notice it doesn't ask me for an organizational level. And so notice, um, here's the name of the material, the unit of measure, we buy bicycles each as opposed to by the pound or something of that sort. Down here we see weight and other things of that sort. But notice right here, material group. My deluxe touring bike black is in a material group called bikes. And in fact, um, there are other groups that exist in the context of my organization. I have bikes and raw and safety and utilities and, and wheel assembly. But this is in that particular product group. Don't ever lose sight, or excuse me, material group, don't ever lose sight of the fact, too, that if you ever see something you're curious about, with your cursor in that field, we can hit F1, and this tells us, okay, material group, that's a key that you use to group together several materials or services with the same attributes or to assign them particular materials, and so it tells you how we could use these uh, to restrict our analysis and to search for particular materials and you're going to see that the way you're going to use material groups is in the context of production planning with MRP. So we have a lot of things here on the basic data view related to our material that would be important to us if we were engaging in procurement. Plant data slash storage view. You might think okay the name of this view is plant data slash storage. Why is that important to me if I'm buying it? If I'm the purchaser, I don't work in the plant. I, I probably, I, I don't manage the storeroom. Why do I need to know this? And it has to do with understanding that what I buy is going to eventually arrive 
And so I have to know what the storage needs are for this. Maybe because I need to make sure we have appropriate storage available for this item that I'm getting ready to purchase. And so this would be things like, okay, are there particular environmental requirements? Um, I can only store this in a storage location that maintains the temperature between 50 and 75 degrees. Um, maybe it has to be stored in a low humidity environment or a high humidity environment. That's going to be on the plant data slash storage view. I also might need to know the dimensions or volume of the item. This is just kind of nuts and bolts stuff. Why do I need to know that? Well, I might need to figure out, do I have enough space to store a thousand of these things? If I look and I say, oh, it, every one of them comes in a box that's five feet by five feet, by five feet, I guess, because it would be a three-dimensional object. So if it comes in a box that's five feet square and I order a thousand of them, do I have enough space for it? I think I've told you before in other examples, I used to work for a, a different university and for a period of time I was involved in some of their purchasing for their food service department. And I remember one year where the food service director kind of went nuts and went to a food show and bought a whole bunch of stuff. And the net result of that was not half of the stuff had come in and the warehouse was totally full. And so we had to go out and rent additional warehouse space to store the rest of the stuff in. Well, what this tracking of dimensions and volume and such will let us do is assess whether or not we have the storage uh, sufficient to actually, to actually uh, store this. Special containers need it. Does it need to be stored in, in some kind of you know, lead-lined container or it needs to be stored in plastic or it needs to be stored in some kind of special equipment? Um, that would be noted here. We can also note things like the shelf life. How long is this material expected to be good for? And then things like any kind of special handling instructions. Now the important thing to keep in mind is I'm not telling you that for every material all of this data will be in the system. But what I am telling you is if we need to record this data, this is where it's going to be. It's going to be on the plant data slash storage view. So let's go back here to our ERP system. And this time for select view, I'm going to cycle all of these off. And here's general plant data slash storage. Now, notice this time we're still looking at the same product as a moment ago. When I hit the check mark here, it should not surprise you. I'm asked, for, well, for what plant and what storage location do you want to know this for? Because it may be different for different plants and different storage locations. I happen to know that this is a bicycle, so I can tell you right now I'm not going to be storing it in raw materials. I'm going to be storing it in finished goods. And based on the search that just popped up, I can tell that the only one of my plants that handles this is the Dallas plant because it didn't give me the option to choose any of my other plants. So I'm going to hit the check mark here. And here's my plant today to storage you. And so notice here, temperature conditions, container requirements, um, storage conditions, maximum storage life, all of these things that, that we haven't messed with, and you can see it's blank for this item, this is where I have the ability to set this. And notice here, like for temperature conditions, if I do a search, 
<laughs> I get default temperature conditions. Temperature condition one, temperature condition two. If my company dealt with products where temperatures were relevant, I would have defined in the configuration process a range of temperatures. And then when I went in here and searched, I would be able to pick which range applied. I haven't had to do that, so we just see like the default ones here that are a part of the system. Uh, same thing with container requirements. Container requirement one, container requirement two. If I had to put things in vats or heaps or trees or whatever, you know, whatever my container is, then I would configure it and then that would show up here. So that's where all of that gets populated in regards to the materials I'm dealing with. Yes, sir. It is per item, per, in this case, per plant and per storage location, which means that if you could imagine a given plant that has three different storage rooms, one of them is like the size of this classroom, and one of them is like the size of um, a football field, okay? And so anything that comes into this room can only be big enough to fit in this room. And so in this room, a particular material we might look at, it says, um, in this room we store it in boxes that are 12 inches square. The other room's a lot bigger, and we might see that in that room, we store really big boxes that are six feet square. So the data is for one unit, but it is specific to a given plant and a given storage location in that plant, which could mean that every one of those would be slightly different. Great question. Other questions? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good for, you know, you keep it around for eight days, for six months, for whatever have you. Absolutely. Right idea here. So basic data view, plant data storage. And by the way, the reason why I'm telling you, you know, we're talking about this and I'm trying to give you examples is so that later on I could ask you a question about this and hopefully that'll help you re remember these things we're talking about here. The purchasing data view. No surprise that that's relevant for us in procurement. Well, what's on the purchasing data view? One thing that's there is what I showed you a moment ago, which is which purchasing group is assigned to this item. And remember, every material is assigned to a purchasing group. Now, a given purchasing group might have 500 materials assigned to it. We're not suggesting that it's a unique assignment, but we might have different groups that specialize in different kinds of materials, and so this is where we see that assignment played out. We also keep track of goods receipt processing time how long after we order this will it take it to come in? And I'll show you that in just a moment. And then delivery tolerances. We need to talk about tolerances. This is the first time we have encountered tolerances. It will not be our last time. And whether you remember it or not, you have seen this in your lab work so far. So here's the big question. And I'll, I'll put this on the whiteboard just for the sake of drawing on the whiteboard. Okay. I order 10 of something. We don't know what it is, but I order 10 of them. Send out the purchasing order. Purchasing order receives. Truck pulls up to deliver the merchandise. And they get out, and they want to unload 11 of them. 
do I take them? Well, the answer to that question is delivery tolerances. How much over or under delivery is acceptable? Now, you might look at that and say, hold on a second. If I order 10, I want 10, not 11. So what's the deal? Why are they bringing me more than I ordered? Well, the fact is, there's an awful lot of products that we buy and deal with that are hard to count exactly. And by that I mean, if I ran a restaurant and I called up one of my suppliers and said, I, I need, um, need uh, ribeye steaks. And I want uh, the ribeye steaks to be 10 ounce steaks and I want 75 pounds of them. And so the next day they show up with a box that has ribeye steaks in it and the box is 77 pounds or 77 pounds, four ounces. Do I send it back and say, no, 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 I ordered 75 pounds? No, I, I take that. Because when we're talking about meat, and I say I want a 10-ounce piece of meat, I have to realize that that means that that may actually be 10.2 ounces or 10.8 or ounces. Inherent in the material, there's a lot of variability. So tolerances give me the ability to control how this works. Now, if I ordered 10-ounce ribeye steaks, 75 pounds, and the truck pulls up and tries to unload a box that's 180 pounds, I probably am not going to take that because I ordered 75 pounds because that's how many I thought I could sell before they went bad. If I wanted that much, I, I would have ordered that much. So sometimes over-delivery and under-delivery is okay, but sometimes it's not. And so tolerances give me the ability to specify this in regards to my materials. So let's actually look at how this plays out in, in the material master here. So I'm going to go back. And for this particular product, I, I can switch to different views by clicking on, oh, I thought I could get there, but uh, it would be up here. So let's just go back. And so I'm going to select my view, and I want to see the purchasing data view. So I'm going to turn everything off, and I've got to find the purchasing data view, which I'm overlooking it, I think, because these aren't in alphabetic order. Where's purchasing? Oh. No, it wouldn't be under forecasting. Finished goods, no purchasing view. I, I can't show you a purchasing view for this item because I don't buy it. So that's why it's not there. So let me find another material that I do in fact buy. And so that's a great example of what we've been talking about here. Um, I buy, um, I'm pretty sure I buy elbow pads because that's a trading good. So I'm gonna pick elbow pads here and uh, for selecting the view, and what do you know? Now I, I have a purchasing view. So I pick purchasing view, and uh, now it wants to know once again what plant. I'm gonna leave it as a Dallas plant, assume that I buy for that plant. Nope, I don't buy that product for Dallas, so uh, let me switch here. I buy it for Miami. Okay, so here's what I wanted you to see. Notice here, uh, here's the assignment of the purchasing group, and here is, um, 
goods receipt time, goods receipt processing time, and and it defaults to zero, which doesn't actually mean that I order it and it like instantaneously appears. It just means that we don't have any data in the system for the system to have tracked this. And by the way, that's something the system will keep track of for me. I issue the purchase requisition, or I issue the purchase order, and then at some point in the future, I'm going to have a goods receipt come in, and so the system can keep track of the average number of days it takes for it to come in. All right, now we're looking for, for tolerances here. And look at this, under delivery tolerance, over delivery tolerance, minimum delivery quantity in percentage, and so I have a lot of, notice this unlimited over delivery, I could turn that on if I were so inclined. So, so I have a lot of options here related to, to delivery tolerances. Notice some other things here that are pretty cool. Notice this right here, first reminder, and, and what is that? Let me click on this and, and we'll pop up help to explain this. This is the number of days representing the time internal at which reminders or urging letters, which are often called chasers or hasteners in the UK or expediters in the US, that I send as a reminder to the vendor that they're supposed to deliver to me on a certain day. If I put in a positive number, that means they get this um, N days before the due date. So if I were to send out a purchase order for something to come in 30 days from now, and I put in here for this material, I want a first reminder to go out 10 days, then 10 days before they're supposed to deliver it, I would send them communication saying, okay, this is just a reminder, 10 days from now this material's in. So look at all the different things that I could configure here. Notice, first reminder, second reminder, third reminder, you know, this can get kind of like you're nagging them to get you the material. But we can configure all of this in the purchasing view for our particular material. Yes, sir? Ah, we do have tolerances there. And when we, we probably will see them later on in our discussion, but we will see them in the context of goods receipt. We will see tolerances. We will also see tolerances as it relates to the invoice verification process. So for example, uh, another tolerance example might be that I issue a purchase order for 75 pounds and I say that I'm willing to pay um, $1.75 a pound, and the vendor, for whatever reason, ships me 80 pounds, but I guess to be nice to me because they've over-delivered, they invoice me for $1.73 per pound. You know, probably if they're billing me under the amount, I'm okay with them giving me as big a discount as they want, but if they bill me over that amount, I become concerned. If they bill me $1.76 a pound, we're talking about 80 cents. It's not even worth me picking up the phone to inquire about that. So we can set tolerances here, and as you note, this is almost always done in percentages. And so we might say, you know, a, a flexibility of two or three percent is fine. And, but the reason why I have the ability to define this on a material by material basis is maybe I ordered 10 of something 
and it's something that requires special storage, and I only have the ability to store 10. So I will allow zero over deliveries. If you show up with 11, you're taking one of them home because I don't have anything I can do with it. So this is why we need the ability to manage this on an individual material basis. Other questions? All right, next view, MRP view. Keep in mind we're talking about views that are in the material master that are relevant to procurement. Or basically what I want you to get the big picture view of, this is all the stuff that this system will keep track of to help me in the purchasing process. In the MRP view, we have first of all uh, things defined like how we are going to do MRP. Now, I'm going to require you to leverage your memory here real quick. Remember back when you played ERP SIM. In ERP SIM, you put in sales forecasts, you ran the MRP program, and the MRP program created purchase requisitions and created planned orders. Does anybody remember, I'll cross my fingers that somebody remembers, does anybody remember what the MRP program did with any purchase requisitions or planned orders it found in the system that you had not acted upon when the MRP program was run. It canceled them because what we did in the context of ERP SIM was we ran what was called destructive MRP, which sounds really dangerous, but it just means that MRP throws away the old stuff and starts from scratch. It was configured that way for ERP SIM. Didn't have to work that way. We control how MRP is done. And later on in a discussion, we'll dig into that in more detail. But one of the things I hope you're starting to realize is just because it worked a certain way in ERP SIM doesn't mean that's the only way it could work. It means that's the way it was configured to work in the context of ERP SIM. So I could in fact have three or four different ways I want the MRP procedure to work in my organization and so I would configure those and then on the material I would define what MRP procedure I want used. Things like lot size come into play because in purchasing I might decide that I only buy in certain quantities. Do you remember the annoying thing that happened in ERP SIM? And, and I don't know how it played out for those of you that took the management version of this, but for those of you that took the CSCI version of this course, I would go in and set your lot size to 25,000 units so that remember when you ran MRP and you looked at your list of planned orders, you saw 25,000, 25,000, 25,000, and then maybe like 7,324. You had lots of 25,000 and then an odd lot because that was like the, the remainder. If, if you needed 107,324, you'd get four for 25,000 and one for this odd amount. Maybe I don't want it to work that way. Lot size gives me the ability to do that. And in fact, I didn't do this. We could have done this with ERP SIM. We could have told the system, I always want lots of 25,000, which meant that if the MRP calculation happened and it discovered that you needed 73,427, it would round that up and give you three lots of 25,000. 
but we didn't do that just to keep things simple and to let you see these ragged lots here. But I have a lot of control, no pun intended, on lot size. Now why is this relevant to purchasing? Because if this is going to be rounded up to 75000 I've got to buy on that basis. I can't buy enough to make 73427 So how the lot sizes are defined is ultimately going to play into my, my purchasing uh, decision here, my purchasing quantities. Procurement. I, I think we made the observation previously that technically we can think of procurement in terms of buying it from an outside supplier. But procurement could also mean procuring it from another plant that exists in my enterprise or even procuring it from my production line. And so we could define that here in the MRP view. Facts related to scheduling, facts related to how requirements are going to be calculated, facts about forecasting and other planning, all of that is here on the MRP view. Basically, all the different inputs that the MRP program is going to use to do its magic inside of its big black box is set up here on the MRP view. And so we have the ability to, to look at that. Since we've looked at the others, just for the sake of completeness, let's, let's look at this here. And uh, let's see if I say, all right, select view, and uh, I want the MRP. Notice there's four views, or the, excuse me, there's one view, but it's spread out across four screens because there's a lot of MRP stuff here. Let's see if this is a valid combination. Nope, uh, does not exist in that plant in that storage location. Oh, I'm wrong storage location probably, but uh, Miami looks like it has it, and this should be trading goods. And this material isn't set up for MRP, so um, let me see if I can happen upon another material that is set up for MRP. Um, I've got to think about some of the stuff here. And you will do MRP later in the semester, but I, I don't think it has been in your assigned lab work to this point. Let's see, we probably do uh, MRP for, for, well, that's going to be, let's see, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to have this here either, but I'll give it a shot. Um, Dallas finished goods. I don't think we're going to. Oh, Lomba. Okay, so here's what I was talking about minimum lot size, maximum lot size, maximum stock level, lot size, lot for lot order quantity just means that if we need 73,427, we plan for 73,427. We don't do any kind of rounding or anything else, but we could set things here. Minimum lot size, maximum lot size, maximum stock level, all of that, and all of this other stuff here that we see fields for, uh, we can configure related to MRP. I am not suggesting we do this because I would not want to do this, but we could probably take the rest of the semester and talk about MRP because it's really, really complicated. And so the only people that really know all there is to know about MRP are the people who do that as the primary part of their job. You can see there's a lot of information in the system related to MRP. All right, so material data relevant to procurement on the material master, 
accounting view. And keep in mind, this is more precisely the financial accounting view. We have the valuation currency, which no surprise here, it's the currency that the item is value, valued in. So US dollars, francs, euros, whatever have you. And then this next, this next set of points here is really, really, really critical. So I, I really want to make sure we understand this because I think this is really um, part of the, the beauty of how data is managed in an ERP system. And it's what I want you guys to get is kind of one of the main things to come out of a class like this. Okay, so this idea of valuation class, and you took screenshots of this for your most recent lab assignment. I had you print out a screen that looked like just a bunch of numbers with codes next to it, and, and that relates to the valuation class. It was a good way for me to check to see if your lab work is in track. Notice this. On the financial accounting view, we have something called the valuation class. And it is the integration between purchasing and FI. Put a big old star next to that, underline it 17 times, because that right there is really, really important. All right. Every time we buy a material or deal with a material and do something with it, there's a financial accounting impact. Whether we're buying it, which is relevant here because we're talking about procurement, but this would also be relevant if we were selling it and so on. The link between a material and the general ledger, the link between a material and FI is in the valuation class. The valuation class determines the general ledger account associated with the material, where the inventory value is reflected. And I apologize for some of these things if like you think, oh, that's obvious, I understand that. But there's some of these things I think it behooves us to have a little bit more uh, discussion about. So, so here's the idea. If I were to look at the accounts in my general ledger, I would see that there are certain accounts that are related to my balance sheet. And I might have a balance sheet account for um, raw material inventory and finished goods inventory. And we'll keep it simple. We'll just have those two as things that might show up on my balance sheet. And on my balance sheet, it would say my raw material inventory is 75,263, and my finished goods inventory is 182,861. Where did those numbers come from? Well, what we did is we have said, we're going to create some valuation classes. So I might call a valuation class raw materials and that valuation class is linked to this account which ultimately is an account in my general ledger now over here i have all of the materials that my company buys or deals with in general. There might be 10,000, 15,000 of them. How do I get a particular item over here to show up in that number over there? I put it 
in this valuation class. And so as I create a material, I put it in a valuation class. I then link that valuation class to a general ledger account, which now means that any transaction related to this material that involves me, in this case, buying it, the dollar value associated with that is going to map from the item to the valuation class to the individual material. Let's look at this in the system to see how this actually, actually works for us. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to kind of back up and go at this initially a different way. So I'm going to replay something that you did in your labs. So we went to S-Pro, we went to the uh, reference implementation, and we go to materials management, valuation and accounts assignment, account determination, because this is an example of account determination, account determination without wizard, configure automatic posting. Okay, and this is some people that have some stuff that's not right, so I'll just cancel that and then click on this. All right, now, what in the world is all this stuff? Well, notice these are different classes of transactions. And so I have things like inventory purchasing and purchasing accounts and customs clearing and freight clearing and so on. I have all of these different types of things that account determination can be configured for. And so the one that I want us to look at here is um, plant stock. So now I have to find it here in our alphabetical list. Plant stock. Oh, hang on. It is uh, inventory postings, which is BSX, change in stock account. Oh, inventory posting right here. All right, so I double click on that. It wants to know, okay, what, what chart of accounts are we talking about here? And so I have to tell it, okay, this is my chart of accounts. So I go to GL02. All right, and so lo and behold, we have this that you have seen. What, what in the world is this? Well, first of all, let's make this column a little bit wider. We have valuation classes. These are just numbers that I have assigned to text. And so notice here, these are different valuation classes. On the whiteboard, I talked about having a class called raw materials. Well, notice here what we have is a default set, equipment one, equipment two, uh, special complex fixed assets, raw materials one, two, three, operating supplies, spare parts, packaging and empties. We have a list of these different kinds of choices here, these different valuation classes. And so my valuation class 3000, which is raw materials, is mapped to general ledger account 200,000. Well, what's that? General ledger account 200,000. And we'll just look at the whole general ledger here to see. General ledger account 200,000 is inventory of raw materials. Okay? So any material that I put in valuation class 3,000 is going to have its value show up in my general ledger account number 200,000. 
So what this saves me from doing is I don't have to every material say, okay, this material, you go into general ledger account 142683. And you go into general ledger account, you know, 123456. I create these classes of which I only have four. And then I put my materials in the classes. And then at that point, I map the class to an account and life is good. My balance sheet and everything works exactly the way I need it to. So I'll open up a new window here. And uh, we just looked at what was uh, this was 3,000 was raw materials, right? So whoops, you guys can't see that because it flies off the side of the board there. Logistics, material management, uh, material master, material, display, display current. I need to pick a raw material. So I will find one. Zero two space star. And so a raw material, I think a hex nut. Well, you notice right here, material group raw, that gives me a little bit of a hint. So here's a raw material. And so the view that I want to see, where is this found? This is found on the accounting view. So select view, wipe everything out, and I'll just pick accounting one. It wants to know, okay, what plant? And so I say, okay, this is going to be for my Dallas plant. Let's see if it'll let me get away without putting an evaluation type. I don't think, oh, it did. Okay. So notice here, this material, let's put in valuation class 3000. What was valuation class 3000? If I want to, I can do a search. And here's my choices of defined valuation classes. It was that raw material one, which was mapped to the general ledger account like we saw a moment ago. So I think that's kind of cool. Um, the key here is the way things get from a material to actually showing up in accounts in the general ledger is through the definition of evaluation class. It is the integration between purchasing and financial accounting. Now implied in this, where inventory value is reflected. So this is in terms of dollars or euros or whatever our currency is. So this is not unit count. This is unit value in the sake of currency. Questions about that? All right, so if we keep going here, um, as we just observed, multiple items share the same valuation class. I could have as many or as few valuation classes as I need. You know, I might have a valuation class for finished goods, one for raw materials. I could have three. I could have 303 valuation classes, depending on how fine-grained I want to get in my general ledger and in my financial accounting reporting. Questions? All right, now here comes another really, really, really tricky accounting thing. And it's more tricky than you might at first glance think. And I will give you a hint. This is something that comes into play in ERP SIM, 
in a way that makes it possible, actually, for teams to, to cheat. Okay? I'm going to teach you how to cheat at ERP SIM. Uh, don't do this if you're ever in a class in the future where you play ERP SIM. And I watch for this. This is one of the things I watch for while the game's going on, and I penalize teams that try and do this. But we have an issue related to material valuation. All right, let, let's pick a material. It really doesn't matter what it is. So I'm just going to call it material 137. That's its stock number. All right, would you not agree with me that every time I buy this material, it's very likely that the price of the material will be a little bit different. You know, if what I'm buying here is gasoline, you know that every time you go and buy gas, the price is almost a, a few cents difference every time. So one of the things that companies have to come up with a plan for is, is how do we buy materials. For example, if I went out and bought 10,000 gallons of gasoline, I'll stick with that as an example, and I bought it at a time when gas was $2 a gallon, we would probably all agree that the gas that I have on hand right now is worth $20,000, right? I bought 10,000 gallons at $2 a gallon. I have $20,000 worth of gasoline. Suppose tomorrow I still have 10,000 gallons of gasoline, but the price at the pump has skyrocketed, and now it's $3 a gallon. How much gas do I have from the terms of dollar value? 20,000 would be a good answer, but could you not also answer 30,000 and defend that too? I mean, the value of that now ha has gone up. At the time I bought it, it was worth $2 a gallon, but now that I have it, what I have, you know, the idea would be if somebody, if you, if you answered 20,000, which is a perfectly fine answer, if someone walked up to you and said, hey, I'll give you $20,000 for all your gas, would you say, yeah, good, thumbs up? You'd say, no, it's worth more than $20,000 because to go out and buy more gas is now going to cost me $3 a gallon. Similarly, the price could have dropped a little. And so the gas that I paid $20,000 for might now, to buy it again, only cost me $18,500. Well, that's this issue of how do we value materials. Now, consider what makes this really challenging is I have a gas tank that holds 50,000 gallons worth of gas. And so I go out one day and I buy 10,000 gallons at, at 208 a gallon. And then a few days later, I go out and buy $10,000 or 10,000 gallons more at 205 a gallon. And then the, a few days later, I go out and buy 10,000 gallons more at 195. Well, what's the value of the gas that I have in my 50,000 gallon tank? You know, it's not like we could say, okay, those gallons that are floating there near the top, those are part of the 208 batch, and the gallons that are at the bottom, those are the $1.95 batch. I've got to figure out how I'm going to value this. There are two strategies that SAP ERP will allow. Now, a lot of you might have had a very similar discussion to this in your accounting class. But realize we're not talking about how financial accounting works. We're talking about how SAP ERP works, which in some cases may be a little bit different. 
I have two choices. I can value my material based on a moving average price calculation, or I could value my material at a standard price. Now, the idea behind a moving average price is every time I make a purchase, the system will reevaluate my previous val my previous purchases in terms of my current purchases and will make an adjustment accordingly. So if we replay this scenario here, this 10,000 was the first gas I ever bought. So the 208 is the moving average. Then the next gas I buy, the price dropped to 205. So it redoes the calculation. The mechanics of the calculation aren't really important to us. And it says, okay, now we're going to value the gas at, at 206 and a half. And then I buy another 10,000 gallons and it redoes the calculation. It says, okay, now we're going to revalue the gas at, at $2 a gallon. So under moving average, every time I make a purchase, the price gets reevaluated, which means that we're thinking in terms of financial accounting. If at the end of this, I had 30,000 gallons of gas on hand because I haven't used any of this, it doesn't really matter what I actually paid for it. The value of this as an asset would be 30,000 times the moving average price. And that's what would show up on my balance sheet. So that's one way that we could configure this to happen. The other way that we could do this is we could employ what are called standard prices. Standard prices essentially allow us to come in and say, gas, oh, we pay about $2.10 a gallon. Sometimes we pay more, sometimes we pay less, but history has shown us over time $2.10 is a good number for us to use for planning's sake. So that's the number we're going to use. And that number stays in effect until we decide to go in and change it to a different standard price, adjusted at the end of the period, which might mean once every six months, once every quarter, once a year, we go in and look at our standard prices and see if any of them are out of whack. Now, part of the reason we have to do this, part of the utility of this is, I might be planning in January for a purchase that's actually going to happen in February. And so I don't really know what price, what price fluctuations will happen in the interim. So standard prices just gives me a way to do the calculation without worrying about the minor changes in price that might happen. Now remember I told you how you could cheat at ERP-SIM? The way you could cheat at ERP-SIM, and I have to swear all of you to secrecy, relates to standard price. Every one of your materials, I'll pick this one, AA-F01 is assign a standard price in the system. And I don't know what it is, I'm just going to guess, 225. It's assigned on a per material basis and it's a standard price. So let's say this was um, raisin. I don't know what it actually was, but let's assume that was raisin muesli. If I go out and buy all the raw materials to make raisin muesli, and the cost of all of those materials was actually $1.87, when I put it into inventory, 
my balance sheet is going to be based on a box being valued at 225. But the box actually only cost me $1.87, which means that I have just made a 38 cent paper profit just by making a box of muesli. Because I made something that cost me $1.87 and my accounting records, I'm valuing it at $2.25. Now, when I sell it, it all works out in the wash. But while I am holding it on my balance sheet, and this also will ripple into effect because it affects my cost of goods sold, my valuation is based on this standard cost. Now where this really gets interesting is these standard costs are pretty good. Until such a time as students are allowed to reformulate flavors and they change this to a half kilogram box. And the half kilogram box might only cost them $1.10 to make, but they're valuing it at $2.25. In the real world, this would probably get us put in jail, okay? But ERP SIM, you know, this is an element of artificiality for the game. Basically, means every time I make a box, I, I book paper profit of $1.15. This has not happened in a while, but about two years ago, there was a team who participated in the ERP SIM competition who realized this to be the case. And so they actually realized that it was advantageous on paper for them not to sell anything because when they sold stuff, they were actually incurred the real costs. So they jacked up their prices to like $15 a box so that nobody would buy anything from them. They invested in production improvement so that they could make like 40,000 boxes a day. And they started making muesli as fast as they could. And by the end of the competition, they had like 3 million boxes of muesli. And they hadn't sold anything, but they had paper profit that just blew away all the other teams. And, and over the years, I've gone to the people at, at um, HEC Montreal and said, what about the standard cost issue? And their answer always is, we're not accountants. And I'm like, well, you don't have to be accountants. You need to fix this. And they're like, we'll put that in the next version. And they've been telling me that for three years now, and it hasn't yet made it into the next version. Uh, I'm very hopeful that at some point they will do that. I have tried myself to go in and change the materials to a moving average calculation, which would solve this. But the configuration that they've set up doesn't permit this. I told you that story not to tell you how to cheat at ERP SIM, but to, to emphasize the importance of this. You know, I don't want to put in bad numbers here. The moving average takes care of itself because the system will automatically recalculate. But in a lot of cases, I do want to use standard prices. But where I get in trouble in my planning is if my standard price is way out of whack as compared to reality. If I thought gas was going to cost me $2 a gallon and it's actually costing me $5 a gallon right now, I've got a problem. Similarly, if I thought it was going to cost me $2 a gallon and the price dropped to 50 cents, I have inaccurate records there too. Questions? Okay, so let's look at, at this for just a second and how this works and uh, then pick a good stopping point. So notice down here at the bottom of the accounting tab, 
I have price control. And I only have two choices for price control. Standard price or moving average price. That's the only two ways that SAP will let me do this. And right here on the material master, we can see that we're actually using the moving price because it has a value in it. If this were set to use standard price, then this would say zero and there'd be a non-zero number in this box. Now, the fields that are underneath this are where the actual calculation happens. And it just so happens that for hex nuts, I have zero in stock. But if I had 10 of them in stock, what we would see here is 10 units at 10 cents a piece, total value $1. And that would show up here on my accounting tab because it is primarily concerned with accurately representing the value of the material. Questions? And in fact, that's the relevance of the material master in procurement. And we are out of time for today. So this creates a good place for us to stop. When we get together next week, vendor master next on the agenda.